Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right. That's the word of the Lord. Well done. All right, you guys. We are continuing our sermon series um, called Shadows of Christ. And this morning we are considering Abraham. I have a little gift for those of you who were raised in church. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. Yeah, you know what's going to happen? That's it. That's it. You know, what, you know what I just did is that song is going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. And later in the day, you're going to thank me for sticking that little melody worm in your ear. All right. If you didn't go to church, you have no idea what we're talking about. Don't worry. You didn't miss out on anything. All right. Um, all right. This morning, I want to tell you about a few things I hate. Uh, I hate slow guy in fast lane. Hate that. Hate it when I'm zipping along and you know, the other lanes are all clogged up and slow guy is going speed limit and fast lane and doesn't get over. And you're looking ahead of him and you can just see there are miles of open space in front of him. You know what I'm talking about? You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm not the only one, right? I hate slow guy and fast lane. You know what else I hate? I hate picking the wrong line at Walmart. I hate it, right? You walk up and there's like four or five lines and you know what you do. You start evaluating right off the bat. You look to see what they have in the cart, right? How many items are we talking about, right? Do they look like they're slow? right? And then you look ahead to the cashier. Do they look like they're alive, right? Are they brain dead, right? 
And I'm not slamming Walmart workers. I'm just saying that sometimes you stand there for eight hours, you go brain dead, right? So you're evaluating all of this, and then you choose a line. And once you've chosen a line, what do you do? You look around, you mark where you are in comparison to all the other lines, right? You know who the last person is in each of the lines, and you stand there. I hate it when I stand there and I watch everybody else go through the line, and I'm still I'm taking like a step, right? I hate standing in line and picking the wrong line, right? I hate it when I go to a restaurant and I walk in and there's nobody sitting here and I'm like, awesome, you know? Hey, we want a table for two. Well, let me put your name down, right? I hate that. I hate it when they put me on that little list, right? Because that means I got to go sit for 15 minutes while somebody's having a conversation, finishing up their meal, right? You know what the bottom line is? I hate to wait. I hate to wait. And I think we all do. We're not a waiting culture, (laughs) We don't like to wait, right? We like fast food and we like it now, right? We like delivery service and we like it as soon as we hang up the phone. We like things fast. We don't like to wait because waiting is a form of suffering and we don't like to suffer, right? Now, the things that I'm talking about are really minor forms of suffering. Those are just discomfort or or impatience, right? But there's all kinds of waiting that takes place in our lives, that we all have to deal with, right? It seems like we're always waiting. So it could be slow guy in the fast lane. It could also be waiting for the doctor to get back to you after you've had some important, you know, procedure and you're waiting for information, right? Waiting. Waiting is painful. Waiting is suffering. And we don't like to wait, Sometimes it seems like God's even toying with us, doesn't it? Sometimes you, you know that while you're waiting for something, God could totally bring a resolution. He could totally tell you what you need to know, what you want to know. He could solve your crisis. He could, and he's just not doing it, right? Well, here's the deal. God is doing that. Now, he's not toying with you, right? It's not like you're, it's not like a game, but he does do that. Because in the journey of life, like we always think the the point is to get to the destination, right? That's why waiting is so painful, right? The point is to get to the store and get out. The point is to get on the highway and get where I'm going. The point is to go to the restaurant and eat, right? For God, the destination isn't the point. The journey is. He's not worried about where we're we're going. He's, He's going to change us in the journey, right? The process of life is one of the integral parts of life for God because his goal is not to get us somewhere, but to change us to be like someone. And for him to change us to be like someone means we have to change, and change is another form of suffering because every time you change, you have to give up one thing for another. And waiting is one of the key tools God uses in our lives to change us, to mold our characters, to make us more like Jesus the hero of the story. Now, today we're going to talk about Abraham, and there's a lot of things that we can talk about with Abraham, but one of the major themes of his life is this theme of suffering. It's one of the primary things that defines the story of Abraham. Now, Abraham is, is one of the most important figures in biblical history, and in fact, of all of world history. But we're not going to unpack all of his great importance. We're going to take a look at some very specific things related to this theme. So I want you to imagine for a moment that God has promised to give you whatever it is that you most want in life. In fact, he came and gave you that promise after you had already kind of given up hope. 
you've been hoping for this thing and working for this thing, and it was getting to the point where it was really becoming almost hopeless, like kind of leaning toward despair, and God shows up, and he's like, I'm going to give it to you. And then he makes you wait, right? You've already waited, but he makes you wait 25 more years. 25 more years before he fulfills his promise. How would you do with that? That's exactly what happened to Abraham. And there's a lot that we can learn from Abraham. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack our text a little bit. I'm going to give you some of the context of Genesis 15. And then we're going to look in Genesis 15. Um, We've talked about how, uh, you know, this series is called Shadows of Christ. and, And the whole point of this series is looking in the Old Testament to see how the hero of the story, the events of, of the hero are foreshadowed, that God is telling this great story and he is continually casting hints, continually uh, putting little pointers in that point to Jesus. And so we're going to look for those in this passage. And then we're going to talk about how this passage specifically applies to our tension, our challenge with, with waiting. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Abraham. Abraham was first called Abram. That was his original name, a name that meant great father. And he was uh, 75 years old when God first appeared to him and promised that he would have a son. And that was in Genesis chapter 12. So at 75 years old, he had been married to Sarai and and obviously deeply in love with her. uh, Because unlike so many other men of that culture and of that time, he didn't leave her when they had problems having kids. He didn't marry other wives. He stayed with her, right? She was his treasure. And, and um, at 75, they are at that point basically giving up hope <laughs> that they're going to have a son. Now, in that culture, that, that's an incredibly important thing. Now, some of you have struggled with infertility, and you know how painful it can be to want something that desperately and yet not be able to get it. That's magnified in this culture because in this culture, so much of your social status, people look at you differently when you couldn't have kids. Beyond that, it was, it was just necessity, right? People had large families during this period of time because it was an agrarian society. You needed your family to, to build your wealth, to support your, your, your ranch or your farm. Or, and, 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 and the family was security. It was like your own personal army, right? It was nice to have a bunch of strong young men around. He didn't have anybody. He didn't have anybody. He was 75. God appears to him. And God basically gives him two words. The first is... Abram, go that way. That's pretty much what he said. He's like, I want you to leave, but I'm not going to tell you where to go. Just start traveling. <laughs> Load it all up and go. So Abram does, by the way. Um, he has, he's a man of significant wealth, and so he takes it all. He loads it on the back of donkeys. He takes his cattle. He takes his servants, and um, they basically caravan out of town with, with his good buddy Lot, and they're going somewhere, okay? The second thing God says to him is, oh yeah, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to bless you with a son, but not just any son. I'm going to give you a son who is going to in turn become a blessing to the entire world. The entire world will be blessed through your son. He will be a world changer. Now, we use that phrase, world changer, pretty loosely today. We are a, a soundbite culture, and we love things that just sound big and have pop. And so you'll see teenagers showing up and cleaning up a park, and they're wearing a T-shirt that says, world changer. I don't think you're really changing the world, I'm just going to say. You're doing a good job, right? The park's clean. That's wonderful. You've, you've definitely enriched a community. 
No, I didn't clean a park, man. I built a house. That's great. You impacted a family. Good job, right? What if you brought in like 100,000 world changers and completely rebuilt a city? Would that change the world? No, no. You know how hard it is to change the world? Phenomenally hard. Phenomenally hard. In fact, um, some of the people that we think are most influential in the world today, if you were to measure the impact they've had on world culture and the, the events of history, it was a tiny little, tiny little ripple in a huge pond. And yet, Abraham's being promised a son that would send out a ripple that affected the entire creation. Your son will become a source of blessing for the entire world. It's a huge promise. So Abram grabs the promise, and he grabs the command, and he packs it up and starts walking, right? Now, I don't know about you, but at this point, I'd be like, we're getting pregnant, you know? Like, come on, Sarah, this is going to happen. God gave me a promise. Let's, let's have a baby, right? But it didn't happen. He went out walking for 10 more years, walking. And God would show up every once in a while. He'd be like, hey, you see this piece of land you're on right here? Look around because your son's going to own it someday. It's like, yeah, my son. When? No word. (laughs) Ten years later. Ten years later, we get to Genesis 15. Still no son. Still no son. Abram is now 85 years old. Biological clock kind of ticking here, right? Yes, they live longer than we do today, but that's 85, okay? That's still 85, right? Sarai is, is about 76 at this point. They're old. <laughs> Abraham's starting to feel a little bit of stress. So that's the context of our chapter, right? So, so in Genesis 15, when, when Abram comes to God, it's in this context of, man, he had this promise. It's been a 10-year journey, a 10-year wait, and he's getting a little anxious, Okay, so we're going to look at Genesis 15, and what I want to do in this chapter is, first of all, let's look at the shadows of Christ, and there are three things we're going to look at. First of all is is the shadow of Christ himself. He is clearly in this chapter. The shadow of the gospel, it is clearly in this chapter, and the shadow of the cross, because that's also in this chapter. We'll start with the shadow of Christ. Christ is clearly shadowed in the promise of the Son. Abraham eventually had a son. We know this. I'm not giving away the ending here, right? It didn't spoil anybody's movie. Abraham has a son. He names him Isaac, right? Isaac ends up becoming the, the father of Israel. Israel becomes the father of the nation of Israel, right? I mean, this is, this, is, this is what we call Old Testament biblical history. And so he is going to have a son, and that son is going to become the father of, of Israel. He's going to have another son, Ishmael, who's going to become the father of, of Arabic nations. And um, he is, he is going to have a lot of kids, right? A lot, of, a lot of descendants coming out of him. Did Isaac change the world? The answer is no, he didn't, right? Did Israel change the world? If we just go to Israel or even the whole nation, the answer is no. You know who changed the world? Christ. Because when God 
gives Abraham the promise of a son who would bless the entire world. He's not looking at Isaac. He's looking through Isaac down the generations to the hero who would come, right? This is the same line that was promised in Genesis 3. Two weeks ago, Dan spoke about Adam and Eve and and how there were shadows of Christ right at the beginning of the story. And just to kind of remind you of what happened there, Adam and Eve were created in the garden and and, and the world was um, defined by what we call the shalom of God. Shalom is this really rich Hebrew word that means peace. But, but it means a lot more than just a lack of conflict. It, it means a wholeness, a balance, a health, a harmony between all things. The world was created to be defined by shalom. Every relationship had the glorious hum of harmony, right? When the great rebellion came, And mankind rebelled against God. The shalom of God was shattered. And every relationship was affected. First of all, man's relationship with God. God, Man could no longer... Adam and Eve couldn't just walk into the presence of God anymore. They were sinners. They were were, um, unclean in their rebellion against God, guilty of rebellion against God. And God in His righteousness now became a threat to them instead of a welcoming father. He still loved them, but His holiness became threatening to them. There was a loss of shalom, a loss of peace and harmony between man and God. There was a loss of harmony between man and himself. Adam and Eve, for the first time, felt shame. For the first time, felt like they needed to hide something about themselves. And who hasn't experienced that? Right? We all know that sense of wanting to hide, that sense that there is something broken within us. Right? They lost shalom between each other. Right? Marital conflict. Marriage at one time was meant to be this incredible partnership that, that completely lacked competition. And yet today, marriage, one of the most significant things we have to learn to navigate as married couples is that competition piece. Who comes out on top? Who rules? Who's the best, right? We lose that, and, and, it, and it happens in the family, right? The very first ad, uh, family, when Adam and Eve had kids, man, one son murders the other. We see a loss of shalom in human relationships and a loss of shalom in the created order. Man and creation, supposed to have this glorious shalom. It's lost, right? Now creation rises up against the steward of creation because there's a broken shalom. And and things like Oklahoma happen, right? Creation is no longer um, this thing that, that yields peacefully to the hand of its steward. So we see the loss of shalom in all of these areas. And as God is explaining all of this to Adam and Eve, he's like, look, you guys, your rebellion has consequences. It's going to affect all of these relationships. In the middle of that, he promises a hero. In the middle of that, as he's, in fact, talking to the snake, um, who we know from later scripture is, is inspired, demonically inspired. Um, Satan was seeking to rob God of his glory in the created order. And there was no better way to do that than to um, basically deceive the steward of the created order and get him to rebel against God. And, And so in speaking to him, God says, there will come a seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman. And you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. It was the very first promise of a hero. And there was a, 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 a... an unbroken line of offspring that God, standing at creation, could see, right? Adam and Eve couldn't see it, but he was at the beginning and he was at the end. There was an unbroken line of promise between that one and the cross. 
And Abraham is a crucial point in that line. God comes to Abraham and says, your seed, your offspring will bless the entire world. He was not looking at Isaac. He was looking through Isaac to Jesus because it was in Jesus that the central problem of humanity was addressed and solved, and that was the loss of Shalom. Jesus did what no other human could do. He stepped into our loss of Shalom, paid its price, and won it back for us. So we clearly see Jesus in the promise of the seed. Now we see the gospel clearly in the way that God works with <clears throat> Abraham. Take a look at 4 through 6, 15, 4 through 6. Abraham, in verse 3, Abraham is, is complaining um, about the fact that, that the promise hasn't been fulfilled. He told, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. What he's saying is, in our culture, um, if I don't have a son, my estate, my name will be passed on to the leading male in my household, which will be Eleazar, who was probably a servant, potentially a slave in the household. So this person who was part of the family, the broader circle of the family, was going to become his heir because he hadn't had a son. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to see them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. Have you ever been in one of those places where there's just no light pollution? You know what I'm talking about? You guys, I've never heard of light pollution. Light pollution is the light that comes from all the houses, all the street lights, all the cars. Like you get out someplace where there are no lights, right? I remember one night I was, I was actually driving to visit my dad in, in um, uh, he lives in Reno, but I was driving through the Sierra Nevadas and it was a cold night and I was out in the middle of nowhere and we just turned off the car, turned off the lights and went outside and you could see more stars than you can imagine. Like I could actually see the Milky Way right? I didn't need a telescope. It was right there. Okay. Abraham lived before the age of light pollution. All right. It was dark. He could see all the stars, right? And God's like, I want you to look at that because you're going to have more kids than the stars of heaven. One time he even compared it to the sands of the seashore. He's like, you're going to have more kids than the sand, all those individual grains of sand on the seashore. Again, a promise that goes well beyond Isaac and the nation of Israel and goes to Christ and the family that Christ himself would gather around him, right? Now, this little passage um, is pretty outrageous and pretty unpretentious. God is giving Abraham a crazy promise, one that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, not for Abraham's age, nor even for the possibility of what could come out of Abraham, right? And yet Abraham looked at the God who was giving the promise and said, okay, if you're saying that must be true, then that must be true, right? The issue isn't the promise. The issue is the one who gives the promise, right? The, the, the issue isn't the word. It's the trustworthiness of the one who gives the word. He looked at this God and he said, you're the kind of God that can actually fulfill this outrageous promise, and so, I'll believe you. I'll believe you. And this is really the way it works for all of us. 
God gives us an outrageous promise and then says, believe me, not because you think the promise is reasonable, but because you think I'm powerful. Look at my power and look at my heart and then trust my promise, right? And we see that, that in fact, um, that's exactly what Abraham did in, in um, verse 6. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord and accounted to him as righteousness. All right, take a look at this verse. This is uh, Galatians 3. This is actually Paul looking back on this passage in the book of Galatians. He's writing to the city there, the believers in Galatia. And, and he's going to unpack it a little bit for them. And he says, Know then that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. All right, he's saying, remember that promise that, that Abraham would have all his kids, the stars of heaven, the sands of the seashore? God wasn't just looking at the nation of Israel. He was, in fact, looking at everybody who would become a son of Father Abraham by becoming, by entering into the faith of Father Abraham, right? Those who would be brought into the family through the work of the hero, the one son, right? He goes on, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All right, so what we see is that God's actually preaching the gospel to Abraham here. Now, the word gospel literally means good news. So God is giving Abraham in seed form the same good news we have today in Christ, that that he was going to send a hero who was going to reestablish the shalom that we had lost in the rebellion, right? That, That God was going to send a hero that was going to fix the world's greatest problem. And in so doing, he was going to gather a family, but a family not defined by lineage or by birth, but a family defined by faith. And that number is going to be as many as the stars of the heaven or the sands of the seashore. So I want to pause for a moment, talk a little bit about how you become a son of Abraham. What does that even mean? Well, that little verse that I just read you is pregnant with meaning. That one, 15.6. Paul quotes it several times in the New Testament. It is, it is a critical verse in understanding how we enter into the work of God. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteous, righteousness. So, so God gives him a radical promise of incredible grace. Abraham looks at the character of the one making the promise and trusts him and so believes the promise. He believed. That's what he did. And, and because he believed... God counted it to him as righteousness. That word counted is an actuary term. It's, it's this sense of, of having a ledger, right? Abraham came to the table with a ledger, and God put a credit on that ledger. And God, God basically said to Abraham, you are approved not because of everything you've done, but because I am going to give you something you don't have. I'm going to credit you a righteousness, Abraham needed that, by the way. We haven't talked about Abraham's failures. Abraham was a flawed guy. He wasn't perfect. We didn't talk about him going to Egypt, right? One time, Abraham went to Egypt with Sarai, right? Sarai's his beloved wife. She's kind of a hottie, all right? She's really attractive, and he knows that, and so he's a little nervous. He's thinking the leaders in Egypt are going to kind of like you, and they're going to kill me to get you. So I'm going to lie and say you're my sister. 
I love you, but I kind of love myself more. That's kind of what he's saying there, right? So he goes into Egypt and basically says, Sarai's my sister. Pharaoh's like, oh, she's a hottie. I'll take her as my wife. So he does, right? And God has to intervene. God shows up to Pharaoh and is like, no, dude, uh uh-uh. You do that, I'm going to kill you. Pharaoh's like, oh, okay. So Pharaoh sends her back and he's like, you idiot, what are you doing? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? And Abram's like, I was scared, right? Okay, Abram was not this perfect guy. If, if, If you had to measure Abram by his record, he would fail. He was a coward. He sinned against God, against his wife, against the Pharaoh. And yet God looked at him and said to him, I'm not going to measure you by your ledger, the history of your works, by your performance. I am going to credit to you a righteousness that's not your own. I am going to credit to you an alien righteousness, a righteousness you desperately need but could never earn and could never get on your own. Do you realize that's exactly how every person who has ever become a follower of Jesus has entered? Here's the deal, you guys. It doesn't matter about your your religious record. You know, religion is man's attempt to solve a problem that God has solved through the gospel. Most religions basically teach you, improve yourself, make yourself better, get more moral, stop doing bad things, start doing good things, start paying for the bad things you've done in the hope that you can actually compensate for them, become more moral, start doing good deeds for others. And the hope behind all of this is that ultimately you can solve your loss of shalom with God on your own. But you can't. Abraham couldn't. And what God is saying is, look, I I promise you, I'm going to fix the problem. You know what I require in return? You need to trust me. You need to believe that I am God and that I will do this thing. Abraham believed and it was credited to him for righteousness. That's exactly how every person in all of human history, if they've been justified before God, have been justified in the same exact way. There's a promise that comes in the gospel, the good news, which is that God will solve a problem you are unable to solve because He will become your substitute in judgment. He will satisfy God's righteousness on your behalf. He will not simply cover up your rebellion, but will pay for your rebellion and will then give you His perfect record in response. So Abram believed God And it was accounted to him for righteousness. So we see a foreshadowing of Jesus. We see a foreshadowing of of the fuller preaching of the gospel. And we also see a foreshadowing of the cross itself. Immediately after, he tells Abram, I will credit to you righteousness. He basically shows him how it's going to be done. And he does it through this kind of this crazy story at the end here, right? I mean, God shows up to Abram and he's like, hey, man, I want you to go get a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, three-year-old ram, a couple birds, kill him. And then cut the heifer and the goat and the ram in half. Don't cut the birds in half. 
I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. But, you know, what he's basically doing, I mean, for us today, we're looking at that going, that is really weird, right? I mean, we, we get really queasy when we see blood in our steak, right? We don't, we're not used to the slaughtering of animals, right? We want that all to be hygienic, and we just want it purely packaged. We want to forget it was ever living to begin with. And yet Abram takes these things and slices them and opens them. In fact, has to drive away the birds because they're coming down on the carrion, right? And all this, it's just weird stuff. What was happening here was actually um, a a Jewish covenant ceremony. This is how high-level, important covenants were made. What, What would happen is people would take a sacrificial animal, kill it, cut it in two, grab arms, and walk through the middle. And what they were saying was this. This was kind of their way of signing a legal contract. What they were saying was, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, may I forfeit my life. May I become like the animal we just walked through. May I die. It was one of the most serious, significant commitments a person could enter into with another person. Covenants were very weighty, right? And so what ends up happening is God basically tells Abram, man, lay out, lay out the groundwork for the covenant because I'm going to make a covenant with you. And then he does this incredible thing. He makes Abram basically go sit down (laughs) over there, buddy. I'm going through this one by myself. And we see a smoking pot and a flaming torch, representatives of his glory um, and, and his holiness, his presence passing through the slain animal as he reiterates his covenant. I will send a son and that son will become a blessing to the entire world. That is a powerful foreshadowing of the cross. Think about what happened on the cross. Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, so fully identified himself with our rebellion, not because he sinned, but because we sinned, gave himself over to judgment and died in our place. He didn't just die because he was condemned by the Romans and rejected by the Jewish leaders and misunderstood by by the Greeks. That was all part of God's plan. He died under the judgment of God. The Holy One. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians, He who knew no sin became sin for us. He so fully identified with our rebellion that he embodied it and God judged it and destroyed him. In the same way those animals had been slain, he was slain. And in the middle of that is the glory of God, the very presence of God, paying a price we couldn't pay so he could give us a righteousness we couldn't earn. I mean, think about this, man. God had just promised, hey, man, I'm going to give you a righteousness not your own. And then he goes, hey, I'm going to make this covenant with you. I'm going to show you how it's going to be done. I'm going to give you a righteousness not your own because you're going to have a hero that dies for you. A substitute who will take your place in judgment so that you can get a righteousness not your own. So we see a foreshadowing of Jesus, the promised hero. We see a foreshadowing of the gospel, the message that comes in freedom. We see a foreshadowing of the cross itself where God enters into a judgment. He didn't deserve, but he did it in love. So that 
God's righteousness could be satisfied in regard to our sins so that we could be forgiven. It's pretty incredible. We see in this a covenant made with Abraham that foreshadows the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that was made with Abraham, foreshadows the new covenant that was made between God and man through the sacrifice of his son. When Jesus shared his last supper with his disciples and said, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you celebrate the blood of a new covenant. What he was saying was there is a new and better covenant coming that all the others was simply foreshadowing. God's wrath will finally be satisfied. And the shalom that you have lost will finally be made available to you again. So this must have been a pretty incredible night for Abram, don't you think? It was actually two nights. It begins on a night, and then it goes through a day, and it goes into another night. I mean, that was a pretty intense uh, 24-hour stretch, right? Surely coming out of this, it's time for him to have a kid, right? Finally, God must have made the changes in Abram necessary. So I'm sure Abram's coming out of the, like, tonight, like, woohoo! all right. He's reiterated it. Man, he showed up big time. There was this display of fire and smoke. Sarah, right? We're going to have a kid. Look over at chapter 17. Hmm. Chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, 14 years later, he still doesn't have his son. When Abram is 99 years old, the Lord appears to Abram and said to him, Hey, I'm still God. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, which means great father. Your name is going to be Abraham, which means a father of many nations. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Huh. And then he goes away again. He keeps showing up and reiterating the promise without fulfilling it. I mean, just for a minute, just for a minute. Try to imagine what that felt like. How would your heart be doing? I have difficulty waiting like 15 minutes at the grocery store. I have have difficulty waiting a week to hear important news. 20 Five years. 99 years old. He's getting pretty old. Isaac doesn't come around, by the way, until Genesis 21. Okay? Basically, they're dead. <laughs> Physically. Not really. But, like, like, there's no hope for kids, right? There's, they're, they're, Sarah's uh, not exactly in childbearing condition. But that's exactly when God does it. All right, take a look at these verses. This is Romans 8, I'm assuming Romans 4, verses 18 through 21. And I want to unpack this because I want us to, as we close, consider how this impacts our experience of waiting. In hope, that is Abraham. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. Pause there for a minute. What do you think that means? In hope, he believed against hope. What it means is that Abraham had hope in what was physically and humanly an impossible situation. He had hope when it was hopeless. 
He had hope when there was no reason for hope. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I love that last phrase, by the way. I mean, where can you find a better definition of faith? Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. See, Abraham stood in faith. He looked at the God who had given the promise and he said, you are trustworthy and powerful. So even though your promise seems impossible, I will continue to stand in faith in your goodness and your power, which will give me the ability to hope. That's where I want you to catch, you guys. There's this tension. We have to stand in faith to walk in hope. We have to learn to stand in faith if we're going to move forward in hope. Even when it doesn't make any sense, we have to learn to trust the giver of the blessing. I know this is real for some of you guys. I know right now some of you are in situations where you're waiting. I mean, there's just tension and you're suffering as you're working your way through that. So let me just give you a few observations from Genesis 15 to help you with that. First of all, when we look at uh, Abraham, we see that he was a man who didn't grumble against God. Instead, he complained to God. Now, I'm going to put all three of them up at once. Don't let that distract you. Just look at the top one. Stick with me for a minute, all right? Don't grumble against God. Complain to God. And some of you are like, man, you're not supposed to complain. That's bad, right? No, actually, it's just honest. See, let me, when you think about the, the difference here, when you're grumbling against God, what's your posture toward God? Are you looking at Him? Are your hands open? Are you being honest with Him? Or are you looking away from Him, closing your heart to Him, growing in bitterness and resentment toward Him? See, when you grumble against God, you are closing yourself off from relationship with God. Complaining to God is incredibly different. What that is, is when you come to God with the tension of your situation, with your frustration, and you say to Him, Lord, can you fix this? Will you fix this? Right? That's what Abraham does. Abraham shows up at Genesis 15, and he's like, Lord, am I, is Eleazar going to become my heir? When are you going to fulfill the promise? He's coming and complaining to God, but by coming and complaining to God honestly, he's actually creating an honest environment where God can then speak back to him, not giving him the answer he wants, but giving him the answer he needs. What he wants is to have his son immediately. What he needs is to have his faith strengthened. By complaining directly to God, coming in faith, and in pouring out your heart to God, you give God the opportunity to strengthen your faith. When you give yourself over to grumbling against God, you actually close yourself off to the very source of encouragement that you need. See, one is fueled by doubt, and one is fueled by faith. One is all about me. It's me-centered. The other is God-centered, recognizing that His glory is, is greater than, than my 
perceived need. One pushes me into the pit of my own inadequacy, trying to solve my own problems. The other pushes me in prayer to the God who can solve my problems. And that kind of leads us to the next thing, which is we need to focus on God's strength and not our inadequacy. We need to make a conscious effort to focus on God's strength instead of our inadequacy. See, many of us live lives, um, let me put it this way. We live by reason informed by faith instead of by faith informed by reason. And what I mean by that is, is we want our lives to be reasonable. We want them to fit in terms that we understand. We don't want things to become impossible. We don't want things to go to a point where we just see absolutely no way to solve things. We want life to be reasonable. We want our reason to be informed by faith, but we are called to live by faith informed by reason. What that means is that we stop trying to figure it out. We stop thinking we have to have all the solutions. We stop thinking that, that we're going to be the ones that have to solve everything. And instead, we move forward in trust, letting our trust be informed by our reason. Was it reasonable for God, or excuse me, was it reasonable for Abraham to trust God? What kind of God is this? Is this the God that spoke the universe into existence? Is this the God that can give life to the dead? Is it reasonable for Abraham to expect a son from his wife's dead womb? If God promises it, it is reasonable. As long as you are living by faith, informed by reason, instead of trying to live by reason, informed by faith. It's not about me understanding and and putting the power of God in a box. It's about me trusting, knowing that God does what is impossible for me to do, right? So I, I fill my vision with God's strength, not my inadequacy. And finally, I let faith fuel my hope instead of letting doubt fuel my fear. I learned a new word this week. Lauren heard it on NPR. I thought it was great. Anticipointment. Some of you love anticipointment. You know what that means? You're constantly anticipating being disappointed. You're looking for all the ways you're going to be let down. You're looking for all the ways your hope is going to be failed. You're looking for all the things that are going to go wrong. So you're living your life in anticipointment, just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop continually. You're standing in doubt and you're fueling your fear. You guys, listen to me. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a child of God. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a son of God, a daughter of God. And you have the same exact promise that was given to Abraham. You know what that is? God is going to unleash his blessing on you. God stands in a posture of blessing toward you. And it's an unchanging posture. (laughs) Do you understand how radical and really unbelievable this is? What God says to you is if you've believed in Christ, you are now covered with his righteousness and you are now going to receive wave upon wave upon wave of grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. You are in a position of simply being pounded and pounded and pounded again with undeserved favor. Not judgment, not rejection, not waiting for for you to measure up, not waiting for you to somehow earn it. It's him standing there saying, you get it because he deserved it. 
God's posture towards you is blessing. And disappointment has no place in the Christian life. We should be continually anticipating and looking for the outpouring of God's blessing, even in the hard stuff, especially in the hard stuff. Abraham stood in the posture of anticipation of blessing. He stood in faith and moved forward in hope, even though it took 25 years for God to fulfill his promise. God was true to his word. And God will bless you. But you need to stand in faith if you're going to move forward in hope. You need to fill your vision with what fuels your heart with hope. So that means you need to fill your vision, not with doubt, not with fear, but with God's strength and his heart to bless. You need to fill your vision with your hero, the Savior who loved you so much, he gave up his life to die for you, rise again, so that you might have a new identity and a new hope. I'm going to put some questions up on the screen as we move into our time of reflection. I ask you guys, just take some time, let the Spirit of God speak to your hearts. He will. During this time, we're also going to take our regular offering. This is our way of partnering together as the people of God to fund the work of the ministry through Trailhead to impact this community. This is our way of worshiping God and and joyfully partnering together financially. If you're a guest with us, I, I would love you to fill out that worship response card that's in your bulletin. Let us know you were here. If God's pushing on you, let us know. Put the prayer request on your card, or if you're brave enough, come back. We're going to have leaders in the back who are here to pray with you and to pray over you. And they would love to do that. We're going to share communion as well, but we'll do that in a moment. Let me, for now, let me just pray for us. We'll go into our time of reflection. Father, I thank you that you are the same God who met with Adam and Eve in the garden. You are the same God who met with Abram on that starry night. You are the same God who sent your son to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die, to rise again a new life so that we might have hope. Father, I pray that you would ignite our faith, that we would be a people marked not by our confidence in ourselves, not by our confidence in our solution to all our problems, but marked by a confidence in your character, confidently settled that you are in a position to bless us, to love us, so that we might have hope.